Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born into a military family and from a young age rebelled against a conventional upbringing. As a sporty teenager, she founded The Sisterhood, a group of girls who had raised money to complete extreme sports challenges, such as rowing across the channel and running ultramarathons in Sahara. Working in PR, she began promoting sex parties, but soon it became clear to her how male-dominated the industry was, so she found her own brand, Killing Kittens, a sexually liberated social network where women come first. Since then, the company has taken off, and British taxpayers even have a stake in it after it won support from a government fund. The business has 180,000 members in 12 countries and an annual turnover of 1.4 million. My guest goes by the line, he asked me what's my favourite position, I said CEO. My guest today is Emma Sale. Emma, thank you for joining uh, us on the podcast today. To begin, we always ask the same question, which is, was yours a happy childhood? Yeah, very happy, very happy childhood. I've, yeah, boarding, 10 years of boarding school and moved all over the world and I loved it. <laughs> And yeah, you mentioned there that you moved country uh, multiple times. So where can you talk us through uh, some of the highlights of the places you got to see um, at a young age? Well, we moved when I was 12. We moved in the summer of 1989, um, moved to Berlin. And what happened in the autumn of 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. So um, that was fascinating because dad was sort of the head of Allied. The We went over there as Allied staff uh, for the British side, but then became the... Um, chief liaison officer um so we had a lot of russians in our house after that which yeah was really interesting um and i'd I'd go and with a hammer and yeah chop off loads of bits of the berlin wall and pack up my suitcase and um flog them back del boy style back in england at boarding school i went back with sort of yeah russian army hats and berlin wall chunks and yeah that's brilliant yeah i was gonna say did you sell them or do you use it kind of just to be like the coolest person at school no, I totally sold it. Um, totally sold them and, yeah, fleeced my, like, rich boarding school mates. Then, yeah, and then we were in Egypt. So we lived in the middle of Cairo for four years, which was amazing. And that was sort of my teenage teenage years. And just, yeah, smoking shisha and playing chess and backgammon in the streets and markets of Cairo with my parents losing me the whole time. Um, and, you know, riding camels out in the desert and horses and going for sundowners, looking over the pyramids. It's, yeah, it's crazy when you... Looking at that, and then we were out in Kuwait throughout university. Um, but that was a defense attache, so that was sort of when Saddam Hussein and like Bush number two started playing silly buggers again. So, all the tornado our house was always full of like tornado pilots, <laughs> which being like a hormonal, yeah, university student was really good fun. Um, so, um, yeah, so lots of fun places. And obviously, as you mentioned, your boarding school, um, I wonder then, was it when you obviously visiting all these really interesting places and then you go to your boarding school did it all seem a bit sedate yeah there was always and I look back now and it kind of I think at the time you know I had you know I was like quite insecure and sort of you don't feel like I felt like I didn't fit into a group so you know I did everything from sports to the the you know to the plays the school plays and everything and I was a real maths and science geek so I kind of did everything and kind of was friends with all the different you know sectors that you have you know all the different groups but I always kind of I was a bit insecure and like you're not feeling like I fitted in to one group but actually sort of the older I've got and the more you 
you know, you read stuff and about business people and that, that outsider's mindset. You know, that's why a lot, you know, most of the, you know, the CEOs of FTSE 100 companies out in the States and stuff are actually, are, you know, from refugees or immigrants and, um, and have an outsider's mindset where you don't, where you feel like you're looking in to the environment you're living in. You don't feel necessarily like you belong in that environment. So I think at the time you feel now it's a blessing looking back at it. But at the time, I think as a teen, you know, insecure teenage girl, you kind of that, yeah, brings up a whole heap of of problems. But looking back at it, I think it's just, you know, it's made me who I am and do what I do. So without caring. And uh, <laughs> Yeah. And I suppose gave, gave you that sense of drive. Um, did you, yeah. did you have a sense early on of wanting of what you wanted to do when you're growing up, like early ambitions, an entrepreneur? Um, no, I didn't. Do you know what that call It's funny because the whole like label entrepreneur I still wouldn't, you know, it's been 17 years of it, but I still wouldn't, I don't feel comfortable going, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I think you, I think you become it by default that like, I don't think there's many people who, you know, grow up and go, well, the ones I know who will say, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur generally don't end up being an entrepreneur. Um, they, you just kind of want to fix a problem and change the world and go, well, that's not right. So I want to create something that fixes that. And by default, you then, it didn't cross my um, I didn't cross my mind really that I could run a business and launch a business as a teenager. It was always your work for someone, but I did have a drive, a really angry drive in me to fit, to change the world and that it wasn't right. And that you know that started as a little girl of going well. You know, boys can climb trees; they can do all this. They um, you know, it's sort of I decided to play the trombone when I was eight um because no other girls played it um boys played it so I was like right if they can do it I'm doing it um and did loads of sport because you know you're constantly told oh you know girls can't do that and boys do that so I think though that driving me of that's not right and when you say that only boys can do that I was very much well watch me I'll do that and from it went from sport and then you move into the hormonal dating world and stuff of what boys can do and girls can't um that sort of yeah the rest is history business wise <laughs> on that front so yeah and um, and you mentioned uh, love of sports you studied sports science at Birmingham University yeah how did you find it um I loved it but I I won the Loch Ness Monster Award two years in a row which was the least recognizable person on our course because I just didn't go to lectures because I was busy organizing the social events and I became again it was that kind of sodgy boys have always done it I became the first like female president of the cocktail society um otherwise known as cocksock um and organizing it wasn't posh at all it was sort of three thousand people in a gritty Birmingham nightclub with 50p cocktails out of barrels so I loved I did love sports science and I love science and you know I love my sport and I am I'm a real science geek, but university to me was, I was very, I was the lacrosse club captain. So I was organizing all that side of it. And then the social drinking side of it. So that was uni. But you left, but you left with a degree. Yeah. Oh yeah, So you managed to combine (laughs) the extra Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm like full on ADHD. So I can just sit the night before and spend 10 hours and get a dissertation done. Um, So yeah. So I think my brain managed to (laughs) pass <laughs> pass the degree for me or blag it <laughs> now after you left university you spent some time working in the city and it's interesting looking at some of your comments on that because I suppose in a way you were so involved with the social scene 
at university. But yet, did you find actually the social scene in the city had some negative experiences? Yeah, so I was I was doing PR, so it was an investor relations that were, you know, there was a real social side to that and out and about, you know, hustling, networking. Um, but it was it was a real boys' club and that I think that it that just sort of even like I say sort of flamed the flames it was had always been there it just added to it so and it was very much so you know I'm 44 so this is like 25 years ago 24 years ago um it was just sort of yeah kind of the boys got the boys club it was very obvious and there were different rules for them to us and I remember starting work somewhere and I got put sitting next to the boss away from the team and no one could understand why the other guy and just sort of the, the comments were you know where where you know get get your legs out you know wear a good short skirt because I've got good pins um because you want to win this pitch you know tomorrow and stuff it was just sort of relentless comments like that that actually made me complain in the end and I'm not you know I'd live with five boy five rugby guys at university and I'm an army brat so I can take the banter um but it just got to a point where it's like no this is actually making me feel uncomfortable it got told I could do official complaints, but I'd be seen as a troublemaker and I need to think about it. And did I want to keep working in the city? Because if I did, then, you know, word would get round and, you know, because of the boys club. So, yeah. So it wasn't, it was fun, but it, yeah, it was sort of a bit of an eye opener back then. <laughs> yeah. And the fact it was these things that you couldn't really do on your own terms, I guess it was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, from that point, you then choose to leave the city, was it partly for those reasons, and you have a brief stint doing PR? Um, yes, yeah, so that was in, that was financial PR. And I actually, well, I kind of left, I left the city and also I was kind of splitting out with a not particularly pleasant boyfriend. So it was a bit of a double whammy. Um, so decided, and I trained on top of doing PR, I was, I was a personal trainer as well. And I trained to be a nutritionist kind of thing. So I was doing that um to get extra money in the evenings and really early mornings had clients so I went sort of a bit full-time personal trainer and went out to the Caribbean for 10 months with PT out there and then that was I kind of ran away um and then decided that I realized that I was running away and to get back to London and actually money wasn't a thing for me so I went into entertainment PR which was you know a massive pay cut doing more clubs and bars and restaurants and that and out and about in town and that's when I started doing, helping with the PR for the erotica show. So it kind of got me seeing the adult sex industry. And again, that was sort of, well, these are all, you know, lingerie brands, toy brands and stuff claiming to be for females, but all run by men with male designers and telling us what we should be wearing and <laughs> what we want sexually and stuff. So again, that just kept stoking, <laughs> stoking the fire of, no, this isn't right. In 2005, you founded Killing Kittens, which is obviously um, uh, the business we mentioned in the introduction. And I just wanted, so what was the point at which you thought, actually, look, look, there's nothing here catering to what, you know, for women, by women, in that sense. So I, I'm going to put something out there. How did it go? It was, so it kind of, seeing that erotica show and seeing the really interesting characters in this massive world that is the is the adult world and the need for it and... um um seeing that at the same time it in society and mainstream sex in the city had come out so you had this group of women talking about you know vibrators and their sex lives which kind of mainstream tv hadn't had 
before. So you had that with the combination of and Summers hitting the high streets, lay like thing, you know, lay low sex stories going into Selfridges. So there was this sort of and the media were kind of talking about this female sexual revolution going on. Um, so you had all that being said, and then but actually kind of living and breathing, being out and about early 20s in London, it was like, well, it's not happening. It's still so much shame and judgment. And I was out and about with a particular group in London where the women were very strong and very sort of sexually um, on it and totally in control and unapologetic. And they were like my heroes. Um, and um, we were out at a, you know, a big wedding in Ibiza with all of them and hadn't really slept for about three days and someone kind of phoned in and just said is everyone just sat around killing kittens at the moment so we had this conversation about well this means you know every time you masturbate god kills a kitten that's where the um saying is from and I just went right sort of <laughs> that's what um that's the name love the name love the two k's in it and just wanted to create a world online and offline which was flip the normal society the norms on its head um where the women were very much in control and there was no judgment no shame I think I was sort of looking back again as I said that very insecure little girl really who kind of created a world that be like when you create an avatar of how you want you know your to your confident version of you would live type thing and do so I never it wasn't about me getting involved because I was never confident confident enough it was this is I wanted to create this world where you know my alter ego would get and we could do it and own it and um so that's when yeah killing kittens was born and for listeners who have not been to a killing kittens party how does it differ from a conventional sex party or in in the sense of uh giving women more power so i've always said it kind of the sex is a kind of a byproduct it's sort of it's setting the scene and creating that environment and that's, you know, appealing to, you know, our biggest sex organ and women are our brain. So, you know, for us, it's a touch, the feel, the smell, the ambience, the being in the mood, the um, being turned on that. So set this, it's set, having events that where all of that's catered for. And if, if people want to have sex, they can have sex. If they don't, they don't. So it's very much, there's no pressure. There's no, you know, I have friends that come down and go, it's not what they expect. It's sort of you people. I think people just assume that you you have to get naked. You have to get involved. You And that's it. They're just sort of great parties, DJs, all the entertainment, um, all masks. We don't let single men in. So every man in there has been accompanied by a woman. So there's women buying the tickets and then they decide to bring bring someone or just come on their own. Um, and yeah, so that's what what it's about and the, you know the main rule is that that men can't approach women they don't know so it's the women making the yeah the first so that's you know how it uh, has been and then it's just sort of you know we're now on paper considered a tech business so it's really the tech and digital side of KK that is the business with the parties being sort of that tip of the iceberg that people see and know about yeah and before we get to that I suppose the tech side now and of course um recent treasury investments in terms of when you were starting out how did you get the word out? Did you find it naturally spread? Pe- people were, you know, coming to you for it, or was it tricky in the beginning um, when you're trying to say, um, you know, there's something? No, it was not. It was because I was kind of out and about a lot and knew a lot of people kind of who were in that sort of sex, what you call now sex positive, um, the sex positive kind of scene. And you don't need loads of people. So, like, the first event, that's like 40 people. The first year was one party a month with, you know, that went up to about 80, 90 people. Um, so... 
and then just PR you know actually it was sort of word of mouth and then the it kind of I think that was part of it that made me realize that actually I was onto something and um, because you had these big journalists from like Sunday Times and stuff wanting to write about it and wanting and you just went hang on a minute coming from PR where you, it's really hard to get hold of these journalists and actually have anything written about to suddenly them wanting to do full pages in like Marie Claire magazine or Cosmo or Sunday Times Star magazine you go actually there's there's something in society that has shifted and um, we're kind of on the top of it. So, yes, that that's it, really. And even now, to be honest, because we're considered adult, you can't do, even though you've got the tech and digital side of it, you can't do the usual digital marketing means. You can't advertise on social media. You can't boost posts. You can't you can't do anything on Instagram. You can, do, you know, we've had our account shut for three weeks and eventually got it back a couple of weeks ago. And we just did, we, but, but we didn't post anything. There was nothing nude or it just, they, you know, it's just as an adult brand, there isn't, you have to be clever and you can only really do kind of the gorilla stuff or PR, good PR bits and pieces. And that's, yeah, that's how it gets out there. No, you said the sex parties these days are just one aspect of it. Um, so how, how would you describe the rest of the business? It being a whole sort of sex positive ecosystem that, in, you know, it's from social network to dating to, you know, we've kind of built this sort of Bumble meets WhatsApp meets Facebook <laughs> meets Ticketmaster kind of all in one with the sex education workshops, masterclasses all online as well. So this whole kind of ecosystem, which at the moment is all under KK, but we're launching a whole new platform in November where we've shifted the ecosystem up and KK is just one community within a much bigger um, and we've got loads of other communities signed up to come in and bring all their members in. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of what it's, you know, the world has shifted, it's evolved. It's, you know, you can look at KK and actually, you know, people have hit it at, at it being not inclusive and not diverse and because of what it stands for and the female aspect of it. And even like that, you know, female, you can't just say females, we're like, well, you know, women what is that whole argument isn't it what is a woman um and you know it's sort of it's female identifying it's non-binary biological born women it's trans women it's sort of anyone that identifies as a woman you have to now um if you do anything for women that it has to be inclusive it has so um it's been a bit of a minefield of keeping what it stands for whilst being inclusive whilst evolving um and that's why actually why we've flipped it to build a much bigger the big ecosystem over the top of it where actually KK is one community and keeps its core values and keeps it rules and and then you just have lots of community sex positive communities within it who all have their own entry sort of or ethos yeah but it's been it's been tricky <laughs> now we recently had Louise Perry on this podcast who has written a book about the sexual revolution and suggested um that in some ways it was not a good way for women and actually the sex positivity has been bad for some what do you make of this I don't know I've read bits on it I think I think the thing is it has it I I'm very much a feminist that goes to me and feminism is having the choice to do what you want to do and have those choices and have the same choices and and options and possibilities as like men do and as long as it's your choice so if it's your choice to be in a you know oh you know it's not old-fashioned like the conventional stay-at-home relationship and marriage which I've got friends that are and they're very happy in that kind of you know pink job blue job that's your choice if you want to be a stripper you know what I mean if you want to be a high-end prostitute if you know what I mean it's sort of if you want to be a pit girl it's sort of to me it's like 
that's the that to me that's what feminism is about and it's your choice to do it I think where it's gone too far is is people and a lot of women telling women how they should think and how they should behave and and like that in kind of actually you know women sleeping around or you know wanting to explore their sex lives and yeah sleep around um and it is that that's wrong and they're only doing it because they're over the men isn't you that's I think that's wrong I think there are some women who enjoy that we have loads of members who are completely empowered and completely in control and we'll have sex with different people every night and that's not them doing it for some man or to fit in with the male world it's because they genuinely that's what they want to do um and you know and, and as animals females are way more promiscuous <laughs> than, than, than men it's actually it's funny because like the science of sex is the one science that is what is practiced is the exact opposite of actually what the science says and that comes down to society and like religion and politics and culture and so it's um I just think we're well, same with religion it's just sort of let people just <laughs> choose what they what makes them tick without judgment as long as they're not pushing them no they're not judging other people for their choices then I just think that's how it needs to be so I don't think I think the you know the female sexual revolution has been amazing and it but if it doesn't mean everyone has to start every woman has to be out there sleeping around and you know having one night stands and sleeping with other women and um divorcing it, it you, you do what fits you um it's having that option and that freedom and that choice to be able to um, choose to do it. Now, your company was recently in the news when Killing Kittens was accepted onto the Futures Fund run by the Treasury. What was the process? When did you find out this was happening? Did you... The Future Fund came out and we were like, this is interesting. And it sort of, you had to have raised, I think, 250 grand in like the one or two years before, I think. You had, they had a, they had boxes that you had to have ticked to qualify. And we were like, well, we qualify for all of these. So let's, let's go for it. Um, but, you know, even then we were like, let's go for it. But thinking this is just the most stupid system that VCs are built where only the VCs will ever benefit from it. Um, where we're in the middle of a pandemic, people are desperate for money. And in order to get this money, you have to go out and raise money. And when you raise the money, this fund will match what you've raised. So it's sort of, that makes no sense. <laughs> Whatsoever, to get money, you've got to raise money. So, but we were lucky in that we've got our members, we've got our community, we've done the raises before on Cedars. So we just went back out to our community. Um, I think we raised 170 and then the future fund matches that. The government matched that. Um, and so, yeah, so we went and did that. And it kind of only, because it's a future fund in that it will convert when you then raise in the future, it converts into the valuation of what you raise at with a 30% discount. So it's sort of, yeah, so we did that, got the money, but then we did the raise this summer and closed it. And yeah, I knew, I was like, just wait. As soon as we close this, we'll, yeah, there's going to be some, I give it till, there was on the Monday, right? I give it till Friday before someone, a financial journalist has clocked the fact that we've now closed it and the government now own like 1.5%. Of Killing Kittens Limited, and sure enough, on the Friday, I got a call from a Financial Times journalist. I was like, "Hold on to your pants, <laughs> this is going to be fun." <laughs> um, so you didn't get to speak to Rishi about it, or... <laughs> no? I um, do know, though. I do know that when we got it, a few people kicked off and said we shouldn't. It, we shouldn't be allowed it. 
Within government. Yeah, so I think some of the spads ran into, or the snivel service, as they call them, um, ran into, yeah, went into Rishian saying we this business shouldn't be allowed. And apparently, he were, yeah, he said, why not? It ticks every box and it pays a lot of that and corporation tax and it's a business. So, um, yeah, and I know like Sarah, I think Sarah Champion, is. Um, she actually put it in for PMQs to stop us getting it. So, hmm. So she was the what shadow women and equities person so you think okay maybe you know some six-year-old male mp <laughs> you can see how yeah pushing back but you're yeah but hey we got it <laughs> you've been you're quite um on social media and other areas outspoken when it comes to views on the government and so forth and i just wondered um we're speaking obviously now rishi sunak as prime minister after liz trust had a brief spell and I was struck by some of your tweets where I think obviously it's become the thing to say the Liz Trust premiership was a disaster and so forth. What What's your view on it? I don't think she was given a chance. I think, and I think there's a part of sexism involved in, I saw so many comments judging her personality and and calling her thick and calling her that right from minute one and I, and. It was very clear to me, sort of mainstream media and like, you know, and I know Rishi's camp really went for her when it was just trusting her, trusting Rishi up against it. And to me, it was like this bully boy, boys club that didn't win, that just with a bully boy, you know, MSM <laughs> editors, um, that they all go out drinking with just, I just, and, and the, you know, and the city boys as well, kind of, there was just a lot of spoilt brat behaviour of people that didn't get their way and I just she wasn't given a chance and to me so I you know I am a kind of a libertarian small c Tory that believes in like small government and low tax and um you know that just giving people the incentive to get off their asses and go for it rather than sit there and let the state just hand everything to them on a plate so kind of what trust stood for was very and her policies is kind of is just my way of thinking and I yeah and sort of you can kind of see it now because you just look at the what happened when the pound dropped when trust started and all hell broke loose and it's it's gone as low in the last 24 hours but is Rishi getting any crap for it no he's not you know there's excuses being made that's not his fault you just, it's just I don't know it frustrates me that actually a lot of what she wanted to do and when I speak to you know I live in Staines it's very working class and actually you know most of the people the builders and everyone around me, the dad's thing, liked what she wanted to do, liked the what the tax stuff, wanted, supported it. And they it was different ends. I had a you know big operation in NHS hospital and the nurses and consultants were and that was the day she stepped down. They were all like feeling really sorry for her and going, Well, we all agreed with her. So it just you know, when you hear that on the streets from everyone from the, you know, upper class to the working class to that they were behind her policies and you watch the twatterati as I call them, you know frothing hyena boy club pack yeah i mean i guess uh, the polling suggested that lots of people did take issue by the by the end of it um mm. but i i wonder then if you were a, a you know a low tax tory if you look at the fallout from the mini budget you just i mean it does seem as though we're moving quite far away from what you're probably like to see she i where i think it went wrong the communication wasn't done i think it was a lot pushed in too fast too quick without explaining how everyone would benefit from it I think on that you know I'm a communications person my background is but I think I just sat there going this could be handled so much better and then people would be on board I think and just to stand up against the the pack um and 
yeah, I just don't think she had a hope in hell, really, from day one. And I just find that sad, yeah. Now, the final question on this podcast is one we ask um, everyone, which is, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? And it may well have been that you ignored them from the get-go, or, or maybe you, you took it and now um, you regret it. Do you know what? I think I won't, as a couple, I mean, I mentioned one earlier of, like, being told to, yeah, not complain because I'd be seen as a troublemaker. <laughs> um, um, but also around that time was very much being told that, you know, if you wanted to get anywhere in the city, you you had to conform to the boys club, be more male, be more, um, act more, you know, not emotional, not be more, yeah, just be, it was that, there was very much in my 20s of if you wanted to get anywhere work-wise, um, then you had to conform to be more boy, <laughs> to be more boys club, um, which isn't, and now it's very apparent that actually, actually the whole emotional intelligence and empathy and, you know, fits in that you know the female dynamic actually makes companies much better that balance (laughs) thank you very much for joining us today emma 